Haley, thank you for that this morning. Uh, you're very well spoken. And uh, I'm about 14 weeks into Hebrew, and so I could totally understand that I probably would have quit and come back home uh, if I knew that I had, <laughs> what would that, what would it be, like 90 more weeks of study? That, that would be bad. Uh, so thank you for that. And it's good to see, it's good for us to see you know, where our money goes and what we're doing and, and to get the bigger picture. And so I, I do encourage you to come on Wednesday and to, to get the whole story and uh, and probably a vision of, of the future too, you know, as we look to continue support uh, both there and, and other places. Uh, I, w- I want to ask you this morning, I guess, to bear with me. I, I feel a lot of weight uh, with with the, the message that I think God has for us this morning. And and I'm somewhat concerned about, you know, it being heard and it being heard in a way that, that would be productive. And so now everybody's scared, but <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, let's just, let's pray uh, before we start. Lord, we, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this place. Uh, as, as, as Dale has mentioned, Lord, I, I thank you for Tony and the blessing that he is to this place. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear. That we would hear you and not me. And that we would apply it so that this place might grow. And that your name might grow. And that we would be considered faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're gonna we're we're moving forward in our uh, you know, I'm a church member book. And uh, and this week we come to the part where, you know, as as a faithful church member, I'm going to pray for my leaders. And uh, it's kind of a unique position, I think, to be a leader and to be standing before you and saying, "This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pray for your leaders." Um, and we're kind of going to kind of base off. I'm going to go a slightly different direction with the book, with the with the same emphasis though, and and. Uh, kind of ground what we're going to talk about in Acts 18.3. We're going to spend a lot of time in, in 1 Corinthians 9, but Acts 18.3 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And that, maybe that seems like a very odd passage. Like, how, how are we going to base a sermon off of, off of that couple of verses? But a, a few weeks ago when I last stood before you and taught, I asked, I asked the congregation to pray for me as I kind of finished up seminary. And, and I would ask the same thing of you today as I've, I've got about five weeks left. And uh, it's interesting, this past week, I was telling these guys yesterday that I got to fill out a graduation form and, and the school kind of has asked for information, some specific information about your current role in ministry and how you're serving. Are you serving? How you're serving? What does that look like? Are you looking for a position? And, and the, the general gist was, you know, they're gathering information because they're making an attempt to place students. And, of course, if, if, if you've gone to college, any kind of post-secondary school, or you're in high school and you're thinking about that, one thing the schools like to promote is we place X number of percentage of our students. If you come here, you're going to be able to get a job. So you should come here because we want your money and we want you to come to the school. So, uh, 
Yeah, that's they're kind of gathering information for that, and so they're they're asking you, are you currently serving in the ministry, and if so, how? And and what I found interesting was how they classified different pastoral positions. And the first option, so they gave you a, a handful of options, and the first option was a full-time ministry, which I think everybody understands full-time ministry is uh, I, learn my, I earn my complete living through the church. So the church pays the pastor's full salary. That's his only job. That's what he does. He's the pastor of the church. The, the second option was a bivocational minister. And what was interesting to me is that I had always considered myself as in that category. Like that's where I would have placed myself. Uh, and if there hadn't been definitions next to these categories, that's where I would have placed myself. Uh, but the way they defined the bivocational minister was, you know, an individual who receives income from a secular job, but also receives income from the church. And so I, I didn't fall into that category as they defined it. And instead, there was a third category listed as a tent maker position, which I had never really heard of that category or that phrase that way. But that's where that's where I found myself and where, you know, I had to click that box um, and, th- and I think that describes every pastoral role in our fellowship because it's a position where the minister is fully funded through a secular job but also serves at the church uh, free of charge. And so one could argue for or against uh, that structure. And I believe that one could argue for or against that structure biblically, either side of the argument. But that's not really where I want our interest to be this morning. That's not the point. But I think what God wants us to hear. But as we continue through this book... We've, where we find ourselves, like I said, is with the command or the charge or the, the motivation to pray for our church leaders. And like I said, I want to make a slight change to that, that chapter that I hope you read. Because, yeah, we're supposed to recognize that we're supposed to pray for our leaders. But I believe it's even more important for our church because of the way that we're structured. And so instead of, instead of calling upon you this morning to pray for your leaders, I want to call upon you to pray for your tent makers. Because that's where we are. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, in the first 12 verses. And this, if you were really, what's the core text today, this is what it is. And Paul says, am I not free? He's making an argument here. And he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? He's speaking to this church. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written. So I think what you need to understand there, Paul's saying in verses 8 and 9, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? He's saying this is not only my argument. This is the argument of Scripture. He says, For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for the oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And here's Paul's main point. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Kind of like I mentioned at the beginning, this message is is kind of a difficult proposition for a pastor. I think there's a fine line that I've got to walk here in the sense that it's not necessarily my place to make this argument for you. But what I'm going to try to do this morning is, is parallel and mirror this argument of Paul. And again, I think it's extremely valid for this body because we have tent makers just like Paul serving this body. So I want to make a handful of points this morning as, as I charge you with please pray for your tent makers. And the first point is in order for our tent makers to be effective, we must invest in them through prayer. If you want your tent maker, if you want your leader to be effective, you must invest in them through prayer. Paul's making the argument that he has rights, rights to be paid for his service. And his exact words are, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working from a living? He's saying, you've got all these other leaders, but is it only me and Barnabas that, that don't get to just be the leader? We've got to go out and work and be your leader. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? So he's drawn a comparison between himself and other ministers of the gospel. And he's saying, they get paid. I've got the same right that they do. Barnabas has the same right that they do. Why do we have to work for a living? Who plants the vineyard without eating any of its fruit? He's saying, that's a crazy idea. And he even quotes scripture to back it up in Deuteronomy 25.4. Don't muzzle the ox when it treads the grain. He's saying you're going to work the ox like a dog and you're not going to feed it. But why would Paul make this argument? Some could argue that what he's doing is inappropriate. Like, Paul. But what's he doing here? What he's doing here, as any good pastor does, is he's pointing to the supremacy of the gospel. That's his main point. His main point is not, you should pay me. His main point is, the gospel should reign supreme. In verse 12, he says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? He takes it one step further, and I think, unless I interpret this incorrectly, he's saying, you're paying other people to do services. Why not your leader? Why not your pastor? But then he gets to that main point. He says, nevertheless, even though I have that right, I haven't made use of the right. But we endure anything rather than putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So he's talking about himself and Barnabas, and he says, we will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's the main point that Paul's trying to make. He says, the gospel is of prime importance. If payment gets in the way of the gospel being spread, then we'll find another way, but the gospel must go out. So the point here is Paul's not calling for pastoral income. He's not calling for it, and he's not speaking out against it. His point is to promote the gospel. And I think this is a powerful message for our church because we're literally in the same position, sitting under the leadership of tent makers. And and maybe you've asked the question, why? Why do we do it that way? Maybe you've never considered it. But why is that the way that we operate? 
And I think the answer for this season of time is because we believe in the primacy of the gospel. It's the same argument that Paul made. When, when this right that Paul speaks about is forfeited by your leadership, just as Paul forfeited it, do you recognize the blessings that come from that that ultimately allow the gospel to be spread further? Part of the beauty of, of this morning is you just witnessed it with your own eyes. Here's just a few examples. The large percentage of giving that goes out towards missions from this church body. What a blessing of God. What, what a blessing through you. The large amount of support and benevolence that goes both to our local community and to our missionaries abroad, just, just like we heard about. The ability that we have as a church body to have multiple men teaching the word of God. And even the speed that we have as a body been able to pay off our debt, to pay off this building. All of those are potentially slowed down or even disappear if we're, for lack of a better word, if we're hamstrung by salaries. If you're paying, if you're paying one individual those are hindered. If you're paying three individuals, they're drastically hindered. So we, ha- we have to recognize and understand this is a blessing from God. And the question that I have for us as a church this morning is, but do we see that blessing? Do we see it as valuable? How valuable do we see that? And I, I, was, I was hesitant to go in, in this direction, but I, I told Dale this morning, I'm being a little more transparent probably than I normally am. But I, but I sat in my house and looked at this this morning and, and was just reading over it again because I thought this, this could go south. <laughs> but as I read over it, I thought this, this is really what, what God wants me to say, but it's in the delivery. It's in the delivery. And I, and I pray that the delivery is what God wants it to be. But I, but I think that we can look through the blessing of the pastorate, and, and in particular, we can look at the blessing of the tent maker. We can look at that through a secular lens. And, and here's what I mean by that. Just doing a little research, the average cost of secular counseling, whether that be couples counseling, individuals counseling, whatever it is, the average cost of that, if, if insurance is not involved, is sixty to one hundred and twenty dollars an hour. That's the average cost of counseling in the United States of America. The full cost, and and by the grace of God through the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't have to pay full cost. But the full cost of a single seminary class at the school that I'm attending is sixteen hundred and fifty dollars for a three-hour class. And so the point the point in me telling you that is. If you want to get counseling, it costs. If you want to get biblical instruction, it costs. But by the grace of God, under the umbrella of the church, especially this church, it's free. It's free. And the argument that I want to make is while it's free, in order for it to be effective, it still must come at a cost. It still must come at a cost. And I believe that that cost, especially in this season of our church... That cost is prayer. And the question is, how often are you praying for your spiritual leaders? 
how often at Plant Grow Harvest are we praying for our tent makers? And that includes me because there's three of them. How often are we praying for those tent makers? I want to I give you a couple of different examples. As a teacher and as a coach, you, you try to come up with a lot of different ways to present the same material because not every player gets it the same way. Not every student gets it the same way. But if, if prayer, I want you to think about prayer as currency. Prayer as money. If prayer is the currency that God has bestowed upon the pastorate of this church for this season of time, and we as a church body have an unlimited amount of that currency, how freely do we spend it? Do we give freely or do we withhold it? When, when me and Sarah, right after we were married and we were living in Florida, we had a pastor. <laughs> I, I don't remember a lot, but he, he would always, one of his favorite verses in Scripture was 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And he would, I mean, he would just get, he'd jump and he would get so excited. He would say, God loves a cheerful giver. When he talked about giving, he'd have a smile on his face. And God loves a cheerful giver. I think the same thing applies here. You know, if, if, if our currency is prayer and God has given you the ability to have an unlimited amount of it, are you a cheerful giver? Or, you, or do you sit on it or withhold it? I think the other way that you can think about this is if you, if you took your money and you place it in a checking account at the bank, what you're doing is you're effectively asking the bank to securely hold your money. I want you to hold my money, and I want you to keep it safe. And I want to be able to come, and I want to be able to access it whenever I want to. That's what you're telling the bank. But if you put your money in an investment account at the bank, now you're asking them to keep the money safely, but I want you to make it grow. So what would be the response of an individual what would the bank have to say to an individual that walked into the bank demanding a return on the money that he had placed in a checking account? He, he walked to the bank and he said, I want you to keep this safe. I don't expect anything else because if I expected something else, I wouldn't put it in the checking account. So I want you to just keep it safe. Let me have access to it. But then six months later, you come in and you demand, where's my other money? This should have grown. What's the response of the bank? I mean, they'd probably laugh at the guy and tell him to give his money. I'd rather you go put it in another bank because you've lost your mind. But how many of us expect a return from the pastorate just like the guy with a checking account without investing in the pastorate through prayer? It's, it's an expectation without an investment. Again, if I want my tent maker to be effective... I think that comes with a cost, and I have to invest. And the way that I invest is with an unlimited commodity that God has given me called prayer. So this is the first point I want to make. For this season at Plant Grow Harvest, the right to payment has been forfeited so that the gospel may go out unhindered. And do we recognize how valuable that is and that it's a true blessing from God? Do we recognize other blessings that God has bestowed upon the church through the pastorate, whether it's counseling, whether it's teaching, whatever it is. 
And again, if we do recognize those things, if we, if we desire for our tent makers to be effective, then we must pray. It can't be optional if we want it to be effective. The second point is that our investment, this investment of prayer, it, it must not only be for the pastor, but it also for his family. Not only is the responsibility of the pastor immense, as indicated by James 3.1, where it says, basically, <laughs> you need to think about five times before you decide to be a teacher, because there's more responsibility. But the words of 1 Timothy 3.5 ring loud to the pastor as well. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of God's church? That's a very high bar. And it, and it seems to be magnified as all eyes are on the pastor. There's a pressure to manage your house, to manage the church, and to walk this tightrope and in the process not neglect either one. And there are days where that time management comes easy, but there's days it seems like it's impossible. And all of those days are, are easy opportunities for outsiders to look in and to judge. And I, and I feel like all of that is magnified in the life of a tent maker. Because the secular job pays the bills. It has to be done well. But God also has charged the tent maker to shepherd the flock. And there's many days where you feel like you don't do either one of them. Very well. Invest in prayer for your pastor and his family. Thirdly, you have to invest in his protection and his family's protection. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All that verse tells you is spiritual warfare is real. If you don't believe that it is, then you're in the wrong place this morning. And pastors and their families are on the front lines. As a coach, part of, part of my job is to scout the opponent. I've got to know who we're playing. I've got to know who they are, what their strengths are, and what their weaknesses are. 
And if there's any way that I can eliminate the, the opponent's most effective weapons, then I know that we can win. And what we need to know as a church is that Satan's no different. He's doing the same thing. He's scheming. He's planning. He's looking for weaknesses. And while he's doing that, what are we doing? First Timothy 3, 2 and f- through 4, it says, And an overseer or a pastor, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able teacher, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. That's a tall order. And I want you to focus on those two words, above reproach. That simply means above finding fault with. No one can look at that guy and find fault with him. That doesn't acknowledge that the pastor is perfect. That's not the expectation. But he's expected to have a reputation that's above everyone else. I know personally I think on some level as an example of spiritual warfare for about the past five years about the same period of time ironically I don't think it's ironic but ironically that we've started this church plant the qualification of above reproach is one that I've really struggled with Because as a, as a coach, it's impossible to please everyone. I'm going to make some people happy, and I'm going to make other people mad. And the nature of the culture. Is people just want to run you down. Sorry. It's one thing to run me down, but as a tent maker, it's always of great concern to me that it doesn't run the church down. How does my reputation affect the church? How does people say about me? How does that affect the church? Because I'm called to be above reproach. (laughs) 
pray for your tent maker. As I was studying, I kept thinking about 2 Kings 6. And it's an interesting story where the king of Syria, he sends an army after the prophet Elisha. This great huge army and surrounds his camp. And in 2 Kings 6, 15, it says when, this, when Elisha's servant rose early in the morning, as you can imagine, he just wakes up and he opens, he opens the tent. And he sees this large army circled around the camp. And he looks at Elisha and he says, what are we going to do? I mean, he knows the situation's dire and he basically is, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> what are we going to do? And Elijah says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, please open his eyes. So the Lord opened his eyes. And he saw, he saw that the mountain was full of horses And chariots of fire all around Elisha. He was protected. Many times in the life of a pastor, it's easy to feel like Elisha's servant. That attack attacks are all around. As a church, do we pray? Do we invest in the protection of our pastor? So that he may be encircled by a great protection of the Lord, just as Elisha was. I'm sorry, this has been a really emotional week. The last point, we must invest with the legacy of the church in mind.
this past Thursday, I had the privilege of preaching my grandmother's funeral. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that word legacy. My grandfather was a pastor for over 50 years and had a great deal of impact on many lives for the sake of the gospel through a handful of churches. And I only know a fraction of that. But the more I think about it, I'm convinced that 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 impact would have not been what it was if people weren't committed to prayer. Psalm 78, 5 and 6 says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children that are yet unborn, that they would arise and tell them to their children. Why? Why? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but instead keep his commandments. That passage speaks of legacy. We should see our church through that passage. Because what our church should desire is to leave a legacy, both locally and abroad, a legacy of the power of the gospel. And that can't happen without prayer. They tell stories of, of Charles Spurgeon. And he was known for having an unbelievably powerful preaching ministry. It says when, when Spurgeon would preach, several men would gather in a room underneath the pulpit, pulpit to pray as he preached. And they pray for people to respond. It says during, during tours of the church, people would come and they would tour the church. And Spurgeon would show the visitors this room where people were always on their knees interceding for the church. And he would tell them, that's the powerhouse of the church. Do we at Plant Grow Harvest have a powerhouse? Do we recognize the value of our tent makers as ordained by God? Do we desperately desire the ministry of this church to be effective. 
Do we desire the protection of our leadership and the church body at large? Do we desire to leave a legacy of the power of the gospel? Because if we do, then we must invest heavily in the power of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this place, and I thank you for these people. And I pray this morning that we would hear you and not me. That we would recognize the opportunity that we have to serve you. That we wouldn't take it lightly. And that we would invest in prayer so that this place might grow, so that this community might be impacted, so that this nation might change and draw its heart back to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.